These are good mornings for us to hear the stories of people that have been brought to faith in Christ. And I know that sometimes you hear these stories and it's hard to maybe reconcile them with some things that you've heard or assumed or understood about Christianity, particularly because there uh, seems to be so much about this particular message that um, is not popularly disseminated in our culture. There's a lot of talk of people uh, feeling conviction and having guilt and understanding that they're sinners. And so many people are told that Christianity is just something that is going to advance their life in happy ways, in nice ways, in ways that uh, you know, should take me from where I'm at and, and just move me to the next level. It's a book in the Bible that uh, really drills down into the gospel unlike any other. It's the book of Romans in the New Testament, and Paul gets to uh, dealing with the issues that relate to the gospel at a level that we really don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. God has used him to write these things to explain what this conversion experience is all about, the one that we've just heard people testify to. And I want you to look at the opening lines of this magnum opus of, of the Apostle Paul that God is using him to write. When he starts this by identifying himself as was traditional in the epistolatory language of, uh, of New Testament times, and, uh, and then how he sets up the subject that he's going to unfold for the next eight, ver eight chapters of the book of Romans. But he puts it this way, he identifies himself, Paul, a, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. Now, that word, by the way, in English is simply a transliteration of the word in the language of the New Testament, which is koine or common Greek. And um, apostolos means one who is sent and uh, can be used in a technical sense for the 12 apostles. Uh, but in this particular introduction, it's not used that way, I don't believe, as you'll see here in the rest of the introduction of this book, but he's seeing himself as someone who's sent with a message, and he's under compulsion to bring that message because he's a servant of Christ. He says, uh, I know that my life is set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship. There it is, and he's using a plural pronoun to speak of the fact that we, we all have this apostleship. We're all sent with this message if, in fact, we're real Christians. And what's the goal? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, and not just here in first century Rome, but look at this line, among all the nations. That's a great opening line. It's the longest of Paul's introductions to any of his letters. As he describes his view of himself and then introduces this little phrase here in the middle that is so familiar, even in the testimonies you'll hear uh, throughout the whole church age. We've heard it this morning, people talking about the gospel, understanding gospel. You don't have to be in church very long to have people tell you what that word means, and I hope you do know what that word means. The word gospel literally means, in the Koine Greek, it means good news, right? The good message. And uh, the problem of divorcing the good message from what the Bible teaches is that you uh, 
Fill in the blanks in your own imagination about what you think is good about this. If you think intuitively that God is a God who's got all this authority, all this power, all these blessings in his bag over his shoulder, and you know, maybe he'll fly down the chimney of my life and give me some of these gifts, uh, we think, yeah, I, I want the good news of God on my team, on my side. I need him to be my co-pilot, and I can kind of manage the rest of my life better with him than I did without him. And so I, I want the good news, and a lot of people go to churches, and they hear people talk about Christ and the gospel, and that's pretty much what they have is a discussion about how Christ can just take you where you're at and just make things better for you. It's very short-sighted and certainly not biblical because if you know anything about the book of Romans, Paul's going to spend all of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and all of chapter 3 talking about themes that don't end up on Christian greeting cards. <laughs> uh, they're not on bumper stickers uh, because it's all the bad news. Matter of fact, there are parts of Romans chapter 1 you cannot read in uh, you know, Canada without being you know, cited for hate speech. Right? You, you, you soon will be arrested for reading what is described in the book as he starts to detail some of the things that God says is uh, immorality, is sin, is a transgression of God's law, and is condemnable, and that if you do them, you are without excuse because God has by nature and revelation and conscience made clear to you these things are an abomination to God. They're wrong. And he goes on to say, well, it's not that the pagans out there who are not under the tutelage of the, of the Hebrew Torah sitting in synagogues are somehow worse off than the Jews. He says all of us are under sin. By the time he gets to the third chapter, he's really laid out the problem of sin, and we've memorized some of those verses about the reality of sin being something that is systemic. It's all throughout humanity. It reaches into every corner of the globe, and that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you may not be as bad as you, um, as you could be, because you could probably be worse. But as it relates to God, you're as far away from God as you possibly could be. You are separated because of the sin problem. In other words, the gospel, if it's going to be good news, can only be understood contextually in terms of its original meaning if you know what the bad news is. And Paul doesn't stutter when he's describing in this great book what the bad news is. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, we all fall short of the glory of God. And from a holy God's perspective, he looks at our sin and there's got to be punishment. There has to be retribution. There has to be a settling of the score, just like you would expect in a courtroom in Santa Ana if there's all these criminals with all this evidence and everyone there before the tribunal of the judge as it relates to the, the law codes of civil society, if they're guilty, you'd think, well, then something should happen. There should be a penalty. And when you start talking about morality and ethics before the holy God, the tribunal of God's judgment of morality, we all stand guilty. And so what we need is uh, the good news. And maybe it would be better for us every now and then to substitute the word gospel with something that kind of begs that whole subject, the, the idea of rescue. I would like you to think about it that way, the rescue of God. If I were to say to you, I got rescued yesterday, uh, you'd expect more from me. You want more of the story, right? You got rescued if I said, do you think that's good news? Uh, of course, the word itself, it just, itself, yeah, it's good. I'm assuming it's a good thing. It's not like you get rescued from like uh, something great. No, you get rescued from something bad. If I said I got rescued, you might wonder, what did you get rescued from? 
right? It was some situation where you were in bodily harm and danger, where it was some situation where you had, you know, some financial situation turn around, some legal situation, you were rescued. Maybe it was a car accident, you were pinned in, jaws of life, you got rescued, right? You've got to have the bad to understand what the good news of God is. The gospel of God is a rescue of God. Matter of fact, that's why the theme on the screen up here is, uh, is water. And it's not because of baptism, because you can understand the water that you see over my shoulder is, uh, is not quite as placid as the water in the baptismal tanks. Uh, this is uh, perhaps a turning of the metaphor on its head. I started this morning by saying to you that in the baptismal tank, we are dunking people in water as a sign of them being dunked into Christ, being immersed and placed into Christ. So the water becomes a symbol of like our salvation, but in passages like Psalm 69, uh, we get out of that context and think about, well, it is a danger if I'm in some tumultuous sea and I'm drowning. Psalm 69 talks about that. The floodwaters are coming over my head. I need a rescue. I need a savior. I need someone to solve the problem that I'm in, the perilous situation that I'm in. The floodwaters are rising. Where's my salvation? You start talking in those terms, you start saying, I get it. Right? If you're in the icy waters of the Atlantic, you need a rescue. Right? You, you can't survive for very long there. And you do know the problem with hearing the testimonies we've heard this morning, that so many of the testimonies that we hear, not just in this service, but throughout the weekend, and I do encourage you to watch all of them uh, because they're all different in every service, but we hear a lot of stories about people hitting bottom. And sometimes when you hit bottom and your life is a mess, right, you, you start realizing this isn't working and so you need a rescue, and Christ sometimes rightly rescues people in those situations because they start act, asking ultimate questions, big questions, and they get saved, eternally saved, rescued according to the gospel of God uh, because a bad set of circumstances have hit, has hit their life. And that can happen, and God does that in people's lives all the time. But you do understand that if you're sitting here listening to that, you're thinking, well, that's not me. I, I don't have those problems, and my life's pretty good, and you know, you're insulated from any sense of peril or threat because you're healthy, because your finances are good, you got a, you know, gainful employment, got a good job, your, your, your family's in good shape. I mean, you know, when you're not bailing anybody out of a juvenile hall in your, in your family, it's like, hey, things are pretty good. Jesus, by the way, encountered an attorney. He was young, he was rich, he was successful. He thought he was pretty good, thought he was better than a lot of people, and uh, refused to submit himself to Christ the way that you must to put your trust in him to take advantage of the good news of the gospel of God. And uh, he went away. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's a scary thought. It's hard, let's put it this way, for people that are comfortable and living a life of convenience and health and wealth, hard for them to enter the kingdom of God because sometimes that insulates them from their need. They don't feel like they're wet and freezing in some drowning situation. They feel like they're doing okay. And as we heard in the testimony tank here this morning, some people are just looking for God as they're out. And if they don't have a problem, well, they don't need to get out of any jam. I mean, he's the last resort if nothing else works, and they cry out to him for some temporal salvation. But all of us need eternal salvation. The gospel of God is a rescue, not from our problems in this temporal life, but the eternal problems that we're going to face when we meet our maker. Very important that we understand the gospel of God. And as he's about to spend eight chapters unloading all of that in the first half of the book of, of Romans, 
we've got to understand that, that this is a need for all of us. And if all we're doing is looking at other people and saying, well, my life is better than that person. I'm okay. I don't need to think about this problem of sin. I don't feel like a sinner, right? Then we've missed the point entirely. As a matter of fact, that's more of a liability in our life than an asset. Jesus told a story about two men that went up to the temple to pray. And you know this story, some of you. And the one kept comparing himself to the other, and he said, I'm glad I'm not like that guy because that guy's life is a mess. Mike Fabar is paraphrased, but that's what he's saying. That guy's like, oh, God, this life is a mess. Glad I'm not like him. Matter of fact, look at my life, looking like I'm doing pretty well. And the other guy was so overcome by his shame and his guilt and his sin that it says he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to God. That was the Hebraic way to pray. You looked up to the sky, you lift up your hands, you prayed there in the temple mount. He wouldn't even do that. He, he looked down, he kept his chin in his chest and he beat his chest and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The story was told and set up this way that Jesus told this story because of people that like to justify themselves in their own eyes. They like to think I'm okay. I don't need the gospel of God. I don't need saving. Those people might need saving. I don't need saving. When it was all said and done, Jesus tells the story that the man who went home justified that day, right before God, holy before God, saved from the peril of his sins, was not the guy who had less sins on his account. It was the guy who recognized he was a sinner. And guess what? The other guy was just a sinner too. It's just varying degrees. I get that. And so today you might say, well, I don't need salvation. I don't need the gospel because things are good in my life. There'll come a day when you're there at the end of your life and you're going to face God. And in all the brilliance of his examination of your life, you're going to have to give an account to this God that created you. And since the Bible is super clear, everyone stands guilty before God. What we need that day is a rescue. We need the rescue of God. Now, this problem has been around from the beginning. And God's solution has been there, planned in eternity past, and revealed to us in Scripture, as he says here in this next line, it was promised beforehand. The good news, the, the rescue was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So we open up the Old Testament, we read about the stories in the Old Testament, and we see that beforehand this message was laid out in Scripture that there would be a Savior who would save people from their sins. It started as early as the garden itself when God sees people recognizing they're sinners and they need some solution to their sin and God does something symbolic by shedding blood. The first time something dies in the garden was him slaying an animal and using the, the hides of the animal as clothing so that they could cover their shame. They felt guilty, the self-awareness. That's an interesting topic and should be preached on sometime for you to fully grasp what all that means. But the simple symbol is very clear, and that is that they felt their shame and they needed it covered. That, by the way, is the Hebrew word that in Scripture is elsewhere translated atonement, to cover the problem. And God says you need atonement. And the animal dies, you get the sense of your sins being covered, and that became the central feature of the worship's uh, center in the Old Testament. The whole worship structure was you bring an animal to worship, which we don't do anymore, but in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, I bring my spotless animal to the priest, and I put my hand on the head of that animal, and then the priest takes the knife and slays the animal in your name that you are now being uh, exonerated. You're being, having your sins covered by the blood of this animal that splatters on your sandals, 
as that animal dies and you go home with a reminder that the wages of sin is death, but the death is one that God wants you not to have to suffer. The penalty of your sins, he'd like to forgive you, but there has to be some transaction. Jesus then, 1,400 years after that, all of that was instituted as the central feature of the Old Testament worship. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, there he is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because the prophets had spoken of that, that there would be one who would come, that though he was exalted, he was like Daniel says, the Son of Man, all glory belongs to him. He would be considered by us smitten and, 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 and despised and, and punished by God as though he's some kind of criminal. And in fact, he would be treated that way by the Father. He would pour his soul out even unto death, it says in Isaiah 53, and he would provide his life as a guilt offering. I mean, that's an amazing transaction that God would then say, I've got a solution. And it's the fact that someone is going to live in your place and die in your place so that you, like the offering, the guilt offering of the Old Testament, would be fully realized in that a human being would take on your sin and would take on the penalty of your sin and all the human punishment of sin so that you could be rescued. You wouldn't have to pay for that. God had planned that beforehand. We see it, the very seeds of it in Genesis 3. We see it played out through the prophets, and God had promised the whole time that he was going to deliver you. And it would come through a person that would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the city of David. And, of course, you know the story of David. David, we learn and teach as, we learn as a kid. We teach to our kids, and uh, we like the story of him as a shepherd boy who steps up as the armies are at an impasse, they're in a valley, across this valley, there's a warrior of the Philistines who comes out named Goliath, and he defies the armies of Israel, and Saul the king, he didn't know what to do about it, no one's willing to fight him, no one can fight him, and David steps up, sees what's going on, says, is anyone going to do anything about this? And he's so filled with zeal and, and indignation over the mocking of this Philistine giant as he mocks God and God's armies that David takes his sling, as you remember after being fitted for army, armor that he couldn't fit in. And so he just takes his sling, and his, he'd killed a bear and a lion protecting his father's flocks in the past. He charges him in the name of the Lord and takes that stone, hits him just perfectly in the right place, falls down, takes his sword out, and cuts his head off. And because of that defeat, right, David delivers the people from the threat of the Philistines and the armies march forward. David, by the way, as he becomes the king of Israel, is promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God would bring through his lineage the ultimate king who would reign over the people forever and his government would extend, as it says in Isaiah chapter 9, throughout a whole world. The increase of his government, there will be no end. And he will establish everything just like his father David did, only different. Because remember, David ends up growing old he ends up dying in a bed, shivering in cold and in the palace. His crown comes off, it gets passed on to Solomon, and uh, David is gone. And everything we read about from the time he kills Goliath until he dies in his palace bed, right, we see there's lots of ups and downs, and though God calls him a man after his own heart, I mean, he's got feet of clay, as we like to say. He's an imperfect man, and there's plenty of sin in his life. Matter of fact, the last act that he commits recorded in Scripture regarding what affects the people is a census that God gets mad about and ends up having a penalty brought upon the people because of his own sin and lack of trust in God. I mean, he's a deliverer, but an imperfect one for sure. 
And while the passage isn't making this point, it's good for us to think about the fact that the perfect rescue that God is providing is not one like David's. It's far better than David, and we often compare. David, right, is a great king, but God is the greatest king. He's the king of kings. There's plenty of deliverers, right? There's plenty of prophets like Moses, and Moses is great, but even in Moses' writings, there's a better prophet that is coming who's going to fulfill things perfectly. Moses is dead. David is dead. But Christ is not because he is dealing with eternal issues, issues that are going to last forever. That's what this next phrase is about. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The eternal king who is going to provide an eternal solution, a perfect solution, a perfect rescue that was planned from the beginning, right, is going to be now proven. Let's put that word in our minds. It's a proven rescue, and we know we can trust it. It's unlike Muhammad and unlike Buddha and unlike, you know, all the, the great leaders of every religion and every, every philosophy, every political group, every, every nation. Here is Jesus that has a, 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 a proven verification that if you want problems to be solved, not in their lifetime, but for all eternity, you got to put your money on the one who has proven that he is the solution for all time. He is the one that if you die, you trust in him, even if you die, yet shall you live. I mean, we, we need that. We need a, a, a proven solution to our problem. And if you think about Jesus rising from the dead on a Sunday morning at church, you're going you're gonna to yawn your way through it and go, yeah, I've heard that a hundred times. I understand it. I know what it means. But do you really? I mean, do you really think about what's being said? That Jesus was dead, right? Dead, like full-blown, fully dead. And, and, and the people sat there and mourned him. And his, his followers cried, just like you, I trust, are old enough to have stood by people that you love by their graveside. And you've said, there's a period. It's not a comma. I mean, this is it. This life and my relationship with this person in this world is over. That, that, that's an irreversible problem. See, it, it's not solved, right, just by you saying a few nice words and reading a poem at, at a funeral. You, you can't fix this. Death is, is permanent. And yet the whole point of Christianity is they go to the tomb on Sunday morning and the tomb is empty. And I'm thinking, if I know he's dead and I go to a tomb and it's empty, I know what I'm going to think. And I know what you're going to think and it's the same thing they thought. What's the first thing they said? Who stole the body? Who moved the body of our Lord? Where did he go? Who stole the body? Hundreds of people saw him crucified and I'm sure before it was over, hundreds of people visited the empty tomb. And the first people there on the first morning saw all the wrappings. If he wasn't dead by the time he was put in there, which of course he was because he was killed by professional executioners, he was certainly dead because of all that is described in John chapter 19 of wrapping him in all of the claws that they wrapped him in and putting all the spices. And they even talk about how much it weighed. I mean, he was packed like a sardine in this thing. I mean, talk about a mummy. He was like a gigantic like Michelin man that was there lying in a, in, a, in a sepulcher, dead. You go, all you see are the cloths, and you see the head shroud all folded up right there neatly, and it's go, he's gone. You're thinking, who stole him? And who took the time to unwrap him? That's what you're going to think. But that's not how the story goes. Hundreds of people saw him die. Probably hundreds of people went to the empty tomb. 
But the point of Jesus' resurrection and the way it was proven and he was declared to be the Son of God, the Daniel chapter 7 Son of God, the one who is going to live and reign forever, is the fact that he appeared to hundreds of people for 40 days. Right? It's one thing to say, well, I watched this guy die, he's my leader, and then I went to his tomb and he's gone. I'm going to think of a natural explanation, but I don't have that option anymore if, in fact, for a month and a half, he is appearing to me. He's having meals with me. He's having meals not just with me privately at two in the morning in my bedroom with, with all kinds of people. As a matter of fact, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared in, in one scene to 500 people at one time. He taught about the kingdom. He continued to teach them just like he did before he was professionally executed. I mean, that's an amazing reality. And it's one that if you're skeptical of Christianity, why would I ever give my life to Christ? Why do I think I need this rescue? Because Jesus said you need a rescue. He said it's the sick that need a physician. And it's the people that see that they're blind that need the salve that can solve their blindness. And I'm here to do that. But if he's one that actually has risen from the dead, then, then I'm thinking there's, I have no option here. I, I need to respond to this provided solution, this rescue that has been planned from the beginning. This rescue that is a perfect rescue from a deliverer that's not going to deliver me for the problems of the next 20 years of my life. Matter of fact, he says, you'll have more problems if you follow me than you would if you didn't follow me. But when it's all over, you'll stand before God and you will have eternal life in a place where all my blessings are given to you because you're trusting in one who has conquered the problem of death. He's risen and if you don't believe Christianity, right, then you would do yourself well and every other person that's deluded by Christianity to disprove the fact that he rose from that. You've got to come up with a solution, as many, many people have done. They've written lots of books, not only of late, some of the sharpest minds throughout all of church history have said, now, if I can just disprove this, I can shut all those Christians up. I'd invite you to get in the long line of very smart people that have tried to come up with another explanation for this, and I would say have at it. Because as Paul said, if you can disprove this, right, let's eat and drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die, and you should just think we, you, we, we are to be pitied more than everyone else if this didn't really happen. But if it did, well, then he was declared with power by the spirit of holiness that's unique from every other spirit. That's what holy means, distinct. It's distinct. And he's the son of God, the perfect rescuer, right, a planned rescue, and one that was proven and the next line says, he is Jesus Christ our Lord, who through, who th uh, through whom rather we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. The key word there, faith, is one you hear about in the tank this morning. People talking about they put their faith in Christ. They'll use synonyms like trusting in Christ. They put my trust in Christ to save me from my sins. Um, Paul's going to spend so much time, after he deals with the issue of sin through chapter 3, he turns to chapter 4 and he starts talking about what this is. What is faith? And he explains it, right? For three chapters, he's dealing with the issue of what does it mean to put my faith in Christ to solve the problem of sin in my life? Faith is critically important. And it makes it clear that whatever objectively happened to Christ 2,000 years ago, and you might shrug your shoulders and say, well, I'll do whatever. Whatever happened, happened. And if it happened, I'm sure it'll affect me for some good in eternity. No, that's not how it works. You cannot say, even if you affirm the historical truth that God had planned a salvation and I have a real problem and the problem is perfectly provided in Christ and it's proven through his resurrection, you can't just shrug your shoulders and say, well, then, you know, whatever will be, will be. The reality of faith is it's, it puts the ball clearly in your court. You have to respond to this. 
I'll put it this way. It's got to be a personalized rescue or it's no rescue at all. You have to personalize this by saying, I grab it. I take hold of it. You have to do something about this. You don't earn it. It's free. It's right there in front of you. But you've got to reach out and grab it. As he goes on to say in the book of Romans, it's right there. It's not hard to get. It's right there. It's not expensive. It's free. You just got to grab it. And you've got to grab it by faith, a kind of faith that's described throughout the book of Romans as, as an obedient faith. You have to do it by saying in your own mind, I am a sinner. I trust in Christ to forgive me of my sins. But you've got to take hold of it. If you don't take hold of it, it does you no good. It's got to be an appropriated solution. You've got to reach out and you've got to take it. And there are a lot of people in this room, I bet, that are intellectually convinced regarding Christianity. They see what good it does in other people's lives. They hope it does good in their lives, but they know there are implications if they take hold of this. And it's true, there are, and you've heard people talk about it this morning. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. They talk about turning their back on the world, and it seems so extreme to you. And you might sit there and say, I don't understand why they're so like, intense and hardcore about this. Those words are even used, right? Hardcore. Why? Can't you have both? Can't I just live my life and put a little Christ in it? No, we've already talked about that in the baptismal tank. You can't do that. Why? Because if I reach out for the salvation of someone as I'm drowning in the frosty waters of the Atlantic and they say, here, I will save you, you got to get in their boat. And guess what Jesus is doing? He's not giving up the wheel. He's the captain. He's not going to be your co-pilot and you don't get to navigate where you want to go. You go where he wants to go and you recognize that he is the pilot and you're the passenger. I mean, that's how this works. You become someone who realizes that once you personalize this by saying, I'm going to trust in Christ, this is my faith now, I'm believing in Christ and I'm following Christ, right? you recognize that it puts him in a position of calling the shots. As a matter of fact, that phrase, obedience of faith, is just ambiguous enough the way it's stated that it can be understood in one of two ways. Right? Obedience of faith can be that this is not an offer or an invitation. It's a command, and it is a command. He's calling all people everywhere to repent, to quote the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Everywhere. Everyone's called to penitently trust in Christ. So to be obedient to the call of the gospel is an obedience of faith, is that faith is the thing that is obedient. But because even in this passage, it goes on to say, all of this is for the sake of his name among all the nations... And you start looking back at that phrase, obedience of the faith, you realize that the way that this whole book started was with Paul saying, listen, I'm a servant of Christ called to be an apostle. And he goes on to say, I've received this apostleship because I want to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. It's not as though I just personalize this faith and then wait for the realization of it. The apostles were gathered there in Acts chapter 1 before Jesus ascended after his 40 days of preaching and interacting and eating with all his disciples. And they said, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time? Are we going to start this all now? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, right? But as for you, go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. You heard someone in the tank this morning talk about, my life's committed to getting this message out. You think, well, that gal must be called to missions work, right? All of us are called to missions work. The whole point of the Christian life is to say, as Christ says, follow me, to say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to be a fisher of men. I'm willing to be your witness. I'm willing to take this message and move it forward. We are what's called the evangelical church, not because we're some weird denomination, because we're not. We're a non-denominational church. 
But they call us evangelical because the core of the Christian faith is once you become a Christian, you are evangelically, you're evangelically expanding this. We want to see all the nations respond to this, starting with your next door neighbor and the person who has his office next to you and the people that you interact with. That's the point. And Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ. I do what he says. And I know that I'm sent, set apart for this gospel of God because I want to see this moved into every crevice of this world possible. Let me put it this way. You're rescued to serve. You're rescued to serve. We've got a rescue, which is the gospel, right? That's, that's another way to say it. It's something that has been promised. It's something that is perfect. It's something that is proven, something you've got to personalize. But now you've got to realize once you're there, now it's like, okay, let's, let's go. He puts us in the lifeboat, and he says, now we're off to rescue more people. And that's my concern. That's your concern. It should be our heart's desire is to see this thing continually advance. And as we said this morning in the tank, we said it jokingly, but that is the point. Let's get the job done so that we can get to the kingdom, right? That's the point. Finish our work and we go home. Because the kingdom is coming, Second Peter chapter 3 says, right, when the final person comes to faith in Christ. That's the purpose. The reason he has not come back yet, it says he's not slow in keeping his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. Not willing for any to perish, He wants to make sure everyone on the docket to be saved gets saved, and that's our goal. It's called, theologically, in the book of Romans, the time of the Gentiles. It has to be fulfilled. We've got to get every last person in. doesn't mean only Gentiles are saved, but predominantly Gentiles. Gentiles and Jews, but mostly Gentiles, saved in this epoch of time. I hope you are rescued. I hope you could get up here and share your story, whether you got saved a week ago, a month ago, or, or, or 35, 40 years ago. But our job, once we get saved, is to care about this particular baptismal setup being repeated all the time in our church because more and more people are coming to faith in Christ. If you're not a Christian, let me pray for you right now that you would come to the place of realizing you can't get out of this thing. Really, you can't. The Spirit is pursuing you. You've got to know this is a proven rescue. It's a, it's a rescue that I, I, I comport with in my conscience. I feel the conviction of the Spirit. It's time for me to put my trust in Christ. And if you're a Christian, I hope that's the thing that just thrills your heart to hear the testimonies of people coming to faith, and you just want to see that happen more and more and more. Let's make sure we do something about that this week. Let me pray. God, there are some here, I'm sure, that are struggling with what they've heard this morning because they think something is, is, is wrong with the way people see Christianity if they think it's something that's either costly or whole life or makes us admit that we're sinners, but I pray that they can see as they open their Bibles and as they read, as we've heard testified to today, the more the lights get turned up as we read the Scripture, that we understand that the good news of the gospel is not defined by me, it's defined by you, and you say, I've got a problem, and the good news is it can be solved, and that you can guarantee that I have an inheritance that's protected by the power of God and reserved for me. Someone who has faith in you, I've personalized this response. I've claimed it. I've said, God, please, yes, save me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And God, for those that need to make that decision, no no cards to fill out, no aisles to walk, hands to raise, none of that. God, they, they can do business right now where they're sitting, dealing with you, and I pray that they would. They'd say they're done fighting. They're ready to surrender to you and put their trust in you. God, for those of us that know that we're there, we've got our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I pray that we care about the evangelical growth of the church. 
Regardless of what the critics say, we care about numbers. We care about more people coming to faith in Christ. We care about this baptismal tank having to get refilled all the time so people can share their story about coming to genuine repentance and faith. Make that a reality for us, God, as your good hand of favor rests upon us. Please make that true for us. Let us share in the harvest, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.